This morning we're going to be looking at Leviticus chapter 19, verses 1 through 8, and our New Testament passage, which we'll be reading after Leviticus 19, is John's Gospel, chapter 18, verses 1 through 11. So please open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 19, and in honor of God's Word, please stand. Leviticus chapter 19, beginning in verse 1, hear God's Word. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord, your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord, your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord, your God. When you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten the same day you offer it or on the day after, and everything left over until the third day shall be burned up with fire. If it is eaten at all on the third day, it is tainted, it will not be accepted, and everyone who eats it shall bear his iniquity, because he has profaned what is holy to the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from his people. As far in the reading of God's Word, please turn to John's Gospel, chapter 18, beginning in verse 1 and continuing in the reading of God's Word. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am. They drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you have given me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Thus far, in the reading of God's Word, let us pray. Almighty God and gracious Heavenly Father, as we come to this wonderful, marvelous Word, it is a word of redemption, it's a word of glory. It's a word of home and security and hope and purpose and life. Draw our hearts closer to you as we engage with your word by your Holy Spirit. In in Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. The very first people that ever read the book of Genesis, the very first people that ever read the book of Exodus, Leviticus, 
Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. (laughs) The very first people that read the books of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy were people that were living in tents, had grown up in tents, Their entire lives had been wandering around this desert. And now that their parents, the ones who had come out of Egypt, were dead to the last man and woman for disobedience. From a 120 year old man. They receive this revelation from God, and then he disappears. And they're left with God's revelation. Now, they can't go back to Egypt. Not just they have no connection to Egypt. Their parents were the ones that fled Egypt. But Egypt has recovered from whatever happened at the Red Sea. We all know that was not the end of the Egyptian Empire. And I'm guessing they look back over their shoulders at the land of Egypt. First, they never knew anything of the leeks and onions and the things that their parents are going to be crying out for. Egypt is not necessarily a place of hope and promise. It's a place of threat and retribution for something they didn't even do. (laughs) And Canaan is certainly not a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a land crawling with giants, mighty men. Goliath is just one of the giants that lives in the land. It's a horrifying place full of threats. They need to know who they are. They need to know that They have a God who made heaven and earth, who has called them by name, who has a narrative, who has a story, who has an arc of history in which they are the very apple of His eye. That's what this band of orphans needs. That's what this band of people camped on the plains of Moab need. Remember, Jericho is just about to happen. The mighty walls of Jericho. You kids have sung Sunday school songs about it. The mighty walls of Jericho are the very first obstacle they face. This is not a cakewalk by any stretch. It's a place of fear. It's a place they feel utterly abandoned, rootless from any culture around them, cast entirely on the mercy and care of Jehovah God. That's what it feels like to be reading these words for the first time. Alone, with no hope, No other story. Being told God's story of you. 
of a garden, of a place of communion with God, of a casting out when man would be as God, would seek autonomy, would seek to take on that God right of autonomy and authority, making decisions for myself. When man became as God, suddenly our hearts just started pumping them out one after another. Every heartbeat a new idol. Calvin says our hearts are idol factories. And with every single beat of the human heart, a new way in which we are fearful of what Jesus says, do not fear, little flock. We don't live up to the call. We wander from the hand of our shepherd. We don't reflect the mercies of Christ. But the story that we're told is not just how the brokenness got into the world, but now as we've come to Leviticus, we've been seeing the story developing not just how... Things got messed up, because we all see, look around you, they are. Leviticus has been a three-part series. The first is this glorious sacrificial system, and all the details of the sacrifices in the first third of the book. And it really comes to its close with this horrible event with Nadab and Abihu. Do you remember that? And the wonder of that chapter is not that Nadab and Abihu were annihilated, all five of them should have been. Aaron, Eleazar, and Ithamar failed to keep God's commands equally. The wonder of that chapter is not God's vengeance, but God's mercy. And that's the way he starts this entire priesthood. So then he builds the cycle of the atonement day. And how this leprosy, this, this, this whole series that we've been seeing on leprosy, how it begins from within. At first it's concealed. By the time it shows up on your skin, it's been working its, its horrible toxin in your body. It is far gone by the time it becomes outwardly controlling your life. But buddy, when it does, It certainly determines your income, it determines your family, it determines your friends, it determines your loved ones and relations. It determines all of that to be a leper. Your life, no matter how rich, no matter how poor, is never the same. But then there's healing for those lepers. There's a healing ritual that we see there. And that healing ritual becomes the Day of Atonement. When the priest, God through Aaron, the high priest, says, we are at peace, now live. Now live. And the first image that he gives to you and me for how to live, he says in this first passage here, Leviticus chapter 19, verses 1 through 9, is to live in the garden. And you may wonder where I'm getting that. (laughs) But this is a visual passage. It's a visual passage. And we see this garden here. I hope to show you a garden here. A garden that is marked by its security. 
A garden in which a serpent crawls right in the middle. And a garden into which our Savior goes for us. The serpent, the security, the serpent, and the garden. Now, in the Hebrew text, you, you see in your English text, if you're using the ESV, it says, speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel. The congregation of the people of Israel. And that may not look as jarring. It may not look as, as noticeable as when you see it in the Hebrew. In the Hebrew, it's, it's, it's really punchy. It's a dot b'nai Yisrael. And, and, and it's, it's emphasizing something there. Because you don't need to say, and, and you can, you know, if you look at it a little bit, you can say, yeah, there's a, it, it's superfluous. Uh, why not say to the congregation of Israel? Because in other places, God says, speak to the congregation of Israel. Or, why not say to the children of Israel? Because in other places, God says, say thus to the children of Israel. <laughs> but, but to emphasize the, the, the threefold emphasis, I think is really drawing our attention to that center the B'nai, the sons, which is, takes the feminine form as well and can be just generically children. Now, making that point that I think is, is, a, is a neat little structure, and I'm not making it to prove something in the text. I'm making it because, in my mind, that at least harmonizes something in the text, which is, why is it that God's big command, the big thing that he's going to lay before you, is every one of you shall revere his mother and his father and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord. Why is it that honoring the mother and the father suddenly has become, is this just patriarchy 101? Is this, you know, by this time Moses is 120 years old. He's, he's that cranky old man that's, get off my lawn. And, and so that's basically what this is. Every one of you, every one of you just shut up. Honor your mother and father. <laughs> of course not. Of course not. This is God drawing a familial connection with his people. God making a covenant not as the magistrate, not as the ruler of heaven and earth, but as the father to the children, to the sons of Israel. There's a familial connection that we see here in God and it, in, in God's relationship with Israel, and it does open up throughout the Scriptures. But it's a father calling his children into what really is a scene of beauty and fellowship. Look at the rest of the passage apart from verse 4. Look at the rest of the passage and what you see is a people in which civic harmony and familial harmony exists. A people who are delighting and feasting before the Lord, eating meat on the first and the second day. A people who are rejoicing in these peace offerings with God. You're looking at blessed people. You're looking at life in communion with God. What the Day of Atonement produces is this scene of harmony and beauty. This scene of security. And that's what Israel is constantly called to look to, to trust in. 
over the course of their existence, are they not? They're constantly called, don't look to Egypt, don't look to Assyria, don't be afraid of that, trust in God, and they constantly fail. And beloved, how much more you and me? How much more you and me upon whom the end of the ages has come? Who know the intensity of that security? Who know the power of that gospel? This image of walking with God in the garden, feasting with Him, fellowshipping with Him, delighting with Him, is the first product of this day of atonement. But into that garden... In verse 4, that black, ugly, toxic serpent. Why would God have to say that? Look in your Bibles at verse 4. Why would God have to say that? I want familial harmony. I want joy in my rest days. I want meat eaten as a testimony of peace between me and you. Why is verse 4 there? Beloved, that's what the serpent looks like. You want to know what the serpent looks like in the garden? You want to know what it is? There it is, right there in verse 4 into this place of security, this ugly, venomous, it glides in almost unnoticed. Our hearts are idle factories, constantly producing things to love, things to fear, things to aspire to, things to run away from. Pills to fix me, pills to fix them, this, that, the other, all of these things that we will strive after, some magical karma that we hope exists somewhere, that, beloved, is only found in this garden. And yet, in the midst of this garden, you and I pump out over and over Time after time, venomous thought, venomous word, venomous action. And here we are, right in the midst of that garden. Perfect peace. Perfect fellowship. And still we sin. And beloved, that tears Paul up, doesn't it? Romans chapter 7. Paul cries out, how can I do this? How can the old man even live with this thing? Seeing what this is, seeing the leprosy, seeing all of this, yet, had I sinned. Who will deliver me? from the bondage of this flesh. Ah, but praise be to God. For there is now no condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus, 
who are the called according to His purpose. Beloved, Jesus Christ, thirdly, went into that garden. That garden, our ruling elder prayed earlier, Jesus, please come quickly because this world, we broke it. It's really broken. This world is really, really broken. Please come and take it. Because we just break it more and more. The more we monkey with it, the more we break it worse. Jesus, please come and take it. But beloved, he walked into that garden. There's a reason John structured that narrative the way that he did. Do you notice in that narrative, where's Judas' kiss? It's not mentioned there. What's the name of the garden? It's not mentioned there. John is drawing on this garden imagery to emphasize exactly what it is that Jesus does. This garden which God has created for us, holiness, in Leviticus 19, 1-9, our sin slips right into the middle of it and turns it nasty. Turns it toxic and ugly, and the more that's there, the more ugly and nasty and broken it gets from me all outward. Jesus walked into that garden. The rulers of the church, together with the rulers of the civil government, together with the man that Jesus has said is the son of Satan. The church, the world, and Satan himself. The first words out of, in, in the, the first words that we see in that narrative, in John 18, is Jesus challenging them. What are you doing here? What are you looking for? And the representatives of the church, the representatives of the civil government, and the representative of Satan himself say, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am. And boom. They fall back on the ground. I'm sorry, tell me that's boring. You <laughs> they fall back on the ground. They get up, you can almost just see them shaking. What jo- whoa, what was that? And so as they're shaking their heads, he says, Who are you seeking? I told you, I am. And then he says, but leave these alone so that not one of my sheep is going to be touched. And when the overeager Peter does what the overeager Peter always do does, jumps first and asks questions later, Jesus says, nope. Nope, Peter. Shall I not drink this cup? The Garden of Gethsemane 
in our minds, we envision the agony. And it's true, there was agony there. But the way that John presents this vignette, it's not a story of agony. Do you hear the king? Do you hear the power? At night, John emphasized the knives and the torches and the swords and the men and all coming. And Jesus challenging them and saying, I am. They fall on the ground. They get up. I told you I am. Leave my disciples alone. And when the disciple gets frisky, Peter, stay. I'm going to purchase a bride. I am going to drink this cup. This is the reason I came into this world. I will march into this serpent that eased its way into the garden. I will march right up to it. And as prophesied from long ago, I will crush its head. I will stare death and hell and the serpent himself. I will stare him directly in the face. And I will slay him. And beloved, you and I see the serpent in our lives. You're blind if you don't. You're dead if you don't. You and I see that serpent in our lives. We see it in our motivations. We see it in our failures. We see it in our lack of commitment. We see it in our failure to do what we've committed to. We see it in our discontentment. We see it, we see it, we see it. Our failures are all over. But beloved, if Jesus Christ walked in and slayed that serpent, And said, I will go to hell itself. I will die. I will take all of God's wrath. I will go to the grave. I will rise again in three days. And I will raised, I will raise up and be seated at God's right hand. And from there I will come to judge the living and the dead. If all of that is true, then you and I have a hope. We have a gospel message to take. A security just like these orphans did all the way back who first read these texts. Because we do see the garden and we do see the serpent, but beloved, we've seen what the story was always pointing us to. What they only saw blindly, what, 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 what they saw through shadows, through, through fuzzy lenses. They saw pictures of these things. And we get to see it so much more clearly. Beloved, if you will rest in this garden, This promise, Jesus will come. That's that's the promise that is given here. 
the promise to Israel, the Messiah will come. And that's what is, is, is drawing our attention to here in 19.1-9. The reality of sin even in the garden. And the need for that Redeemer. That day of atonement had to come every year. The sacrifices had to keep going. But beloved, let this passage draw your eye not only not only to the reality of sin and the serpent in the garden, but also to the truth that our Jesus reigns. That in your baptism, you are united to him in his death, burial, and resurrection. Raised up together with him in your baptism, you are seated with him in heavenly places. And he is now reigning and is destroying all principalities' powers. And he is giving, the Father is giving the kingdom into his hand. And let that confidence sink deep down in and guide you on Monday morning when it doesn't feel very kingdomy and when it doesn't feel very glorious. And let it guide you knowing that our very lives, our very message, the testimony that you and I live out, is profoundly shaped by our first day of the week, reorientation. Because again, the first day of the week, like the new year, is an opportunity, a call, a refreshing, a nourishing, a reminding, a challenging, a convicting, a strengthening, a joy. It's all of that. <laughs> it's all of what living with a holy God is. Living with His people is. It's all of that. And it's all ultimately making you and me more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. Almighty God, even as your gospel is sweet upon our lips sweet upon our ears, nourishing to our souls. May our lives be sweet and nourishing to those that you place us together with, beginning in the very closest of our familial connections and radiating outward as Jesus Christ is honored and magnified in our lives. In Christ's name, amen.